There are very few things that investors can do that are free. But what about a podcast that delivers educational content on investing, saving strategies, financial planning, topical items of interest, and maybe even the odd wacky topic? Welcome to Free Lunch. Hosted by Greg Kramitsky and Colin Andrews of the CM Group at CIBC Wood Gundy, Free Lunch will bring listeners the firm's vast knowledge and experience in dealing with uncertainty to help clients achieve their vision through a deep understanding of what is important to them that requires planning, money, and time. Learn more and subscribe today at markets-work.com. Welcome back to the Free Lunch Podcast with Greg and Colin. And Greg, this is episode 50. Hard to believe, but yeah. It's been a good run. It has. And we're coming up to the one-year anniversary of the launch of our podcast. And we're going to do something fun to celebrate that on our next show. But before we get ahead of ourselves, Greg, last week we had a great conversation with Daniel Crosby, a New York Times bestseller, PhD in behavioral finance. Just a good guy. That was a lot of fun. Great talk. And certainly if anyone hasn't listened yet, we'd encourage you to go back and listen to that one. Yeah, exactly. Now this week we're going to go... I always say this, we're going to go a different direction, but it is a different direction. We're going to talk about probability. Like Greg, what is the probability that we can discuss probability and outcomes in 30 minutes or less when it comes to investing? Good question. Somewhere between 80 and 90%. Okay, well, we're going to go for it. All right. Well, let's talk about probability. So for anybody out there who thinks math is fun, and I have to be honest, I kind of think math is fun. This could be an interesting discussion. And for those who hate math, I think this is probably an important discussion because probability is something we have to deal with in everyday lives. We deal with it with regards to our health, the weather, and importantly, for this podcast, it's a very big part of what we do in investment management. So what is probability? Simply put, it's the numerical likelihood that a specific event will occur. So in order to calculate probability, the formula is to divide the specific outcome you're looking for by the total number of possible outcomes. So for example, if you flip a coin, you know you could get a head or a tail. So there's two possible outcomes. And if you want to consider, well, what's the chance of flipping a head? Then there's one desired outcome, a head, out of two possible outcomes, and therefore one out of two, which you can describe as 0.5, or very often we talk about probability in percentage terms, which is 50%. Well, that just makes sense. You have a 50% chance of flipping a head or a tail. That's right. And I think everybody knows this kind of intuitively, but I think it's important to look at how does that figure then into some of these other aspects of our daily lives, which are filled with uncertainty. So if you think about it, something that has absolutely no chance of happening would have a 0% probability. And anything that's actually guaranteed to happen would be 100%. Well, actually, I talk about this with my kids all the time. When something happens, Somebody will often say, what was the chance of that happening? And the answer is always 100% because it happened. Exactly. So there's actually probably not too many things in life that are 100% guaranteed, but there definitely are some, and we do come across them from time to time. So for example, not to be overly morbid, but the bottom line is we're all going to die one day. So there's a 100% probability that we will die eventually. But let's look at situations maybe that are a little bit more uncertain and look at things in everyday life that depend on probability. So let's talk about life insurance. There's different types of life insurance that most of the people we deal with and most people in general will look at. And those two types of life insurance are term insurance, which is temporary insurance, or permanent insurance. 
So let's talk about term insurance for a second. So if anybody out there has gone to look for life insurance when they're 30 or 35 years old, they would find that it's very inexpensive. And why would it be inexpensive? Well, because the life insurance companies know that at age 30 or 35, there's a relatively small risk of dying. And it doesn't mean that people don't die at age 30 and 35, but it just means that on an individual basis, there's a relatively low risk. And so the insurance companies look at the whole population of 30-year-olds that they're going to provide insurance to, and they know what percentage of that population will die approximately, and they can plan accordingly. So for us as the people that are buying insurance, it's like, well, and thinking back to yourself or myself, when your family is young, you have a young family, and the risk of dying, even though it's small, if it were to happen, it could have a big impact on your family because they would have to replace the lost income that you would have and your income potential for the next 30 years of working. Well, and the probability of them replacing that income if you died is actually zero if you don't have insurance. Exactly. And so as a person who needs insurance at a young age, it's great that because of the likelihood of your dying, the insurance companies can offer you a very good premium. So it kind of works for everybody. And it's just a form of risk management. It's not that you're expecting to die, but you could. Now, the other side of that when it comes to insurance is permanent insurance. So permanent insurance is interesting. It comes in different forms. They call it term to 100, which basically just means you have insurance for as long as you're alive. Or it can be whole life or universal insurance. But the bottom line is, with permanent insurance, the insurance company knows that you will die and they will pay out on your policy. And so for that reason, the pricing is a lot different on permanent insurance because the insurance company has to be able to, of course, recoup all of the costs, the benefits that they're going to pay out over time through your premiums. And that's why when you buy permanent insurance, which basically says, my beneficiaries will get the money when I die, it'll be a lot more expensive. And so that's, again, a case where probability is such an extremely important part of the whole insurance business. You're just prepaying that dollar amount. So you have a million dollar permanent policy you have to pay for it over 10 years. Maybe it costs you $400,000 in premiums to pay out a million dollars at your death. But I mean, the insurance company isn't doing this as a charity. No, they're not. And listen, and they know that when they use their actuarial mortality tables and things like that, they know that, okay, of this population that we're providing permanent insurance to, some will die sooner which is a detriment to the insurance company because they have not had the benefit of earning premiums for their expected time frame, and some will live longer. And so for those, those people will pay more premiums over time. And of course, mathematically, they can just calculate what do we need in terms of premiums in order to meet our requirements. So it's the same thing when you buy car insurance. Now, you and I both have young sons who have just got driver's licenses. And cars. And cars. And so you've had to maybe help your son insure his car. I've had to help my son insure his car. So what did you notice when you got the quote on that insurance? It was eye-opening. It was shocking, really. I mean, the quote for my son's insurance was about four times what my insurance is. Exactly. And that happens because the insurance company knows that on average, young male drivers in that 16 to 19 or 21 age group are more likely to have accidents because that's just what's happened. That's the experience. 
And so when you're in that age group and you want insurance, the insurance company is going to charge you based on accident information. And listen, for all of us who insure our cars, we pay for collision insurance, which is basically the ability to repair your own car if you are found at fault in an accident. And if you think you're a great driver and are not going to cause any accidents, you could choose not to buy collision insurance. Yeah, but don't 80% of all drivers believe they're better than the average? (laughs) Exactly. And so even though you may be a great driver, it doesn't mean that there can't be a situation, we call them accidents, that could occur and therefore you're willing to pay for that protection just in case. So what's another area where probabilities play a fairly significant role? The weather. When you turn on the weather channel, they tell you what they expect the high for the day to be and they show you a probability of precipitation. So they never say it's going to rain today, or they very rarely say it's going to rain today, but they'll give you a high probability, maybe 80%. And that's based on just their previous experience. They know that when certain atmospheric conditions occur, there's a higher likelihood of precipitation. And so they build that into their models and that's what they put up. And so you're not guaranteed of rain probably any day, unless, as you say, it's already raining. Well, because then, if then it's, it's a, a guarantee. Yeah, if it's a 40% <laughs> chance of precipitation, but it rains, then it becomes 100%. Uh, that's right? right. Exactly. So in this case, what the meteorologists do and the forecasters is they look at history. They look at thousands of situations when the atmospheric conditions were similar to today's, and they use that to make their predictions. So let's move on to even one more topical issue, and that would be the COVID-19 pandemic. So probabilities play a huge role in our understanding of how diseases are transmitted, how many people will get sick, how many of those will be hospitalized, and how many may die. And right now, of course, we're talking about the probability of getting the disease once you've been vaccinated. And in addition, on top of all that, we now have to talk about what's the probability of experiencing a serious side effect from a vaccine like these blood clots, which have been associated with A couple of different vaccines. Certain vaccines. That's right. So it does become, I would say, a gamble. What's a gamble? It's just making a bet on something that's uncertain. And listen, I mean, I guess I don't mind making my own views on getting vaccinated. These are just my opinions, of course. But in my opinion, if you're healthy enough and there's not some reason or some medical reason why you shouldn't receive a vaccine, I personally think you should try to get a vaccine. We are just talking earlier about Let's say the situation around this one particular vaccine that has some incidence of blood clots associated with it. Well, the incidence of those blood clots is about four cases in a million. So that's 0.0004%. So let's compare that to the incidence of blood clots from different things. So women who may be on the birth control pill, the incidence of blood clots in those women it's about 500 to 1,200 cases in a million, so about 005 to 0.12%. I'd say that's higher than 0.0004. Much higher. If you're a smoker, the chances are about 0.18% of getting a blood clot from your smoking. And if you do get infected with COVID, there's about 165,000 cases per million of blood clots in people that do have COVID infection, 16.5%. So you don't have to be a mathematician to know that 0.0004% is lower than 16.5%. Absolutely. And again, it's a gamble, but it's a gamble that all of us have to decide whether or not it's a risk worth taking. But Greg, what the heck does this have to do with investing? Well, it turns out quite a bit. So let's look at the U.S. stock market just because we have so much data 
going back almost 100 years with the U.S. data. So when you look at the last 94 years of stock market returns, that goes back to 1926, we see that on average, U.S. stocks outperform treasury bills, which is the guaranteed return, 70% of that time in any one year. So in any year, when you start the year, what are the odds of the stocks outperforming? The odds are about 70%. It's pretty good. This is what you would call a higher likelihood. When you look at five-year time periods, and this is all five-year rolling periods starting in 1926, so 1926 to 31, 27 to 32, et cetera, of all of those five-year time periods, the number grows to 78% and it grows to 86% over all 10-year periods. So if you were to say, well, what's the chance of stocks outperforming treasury bills? The odds are, well, in any one year, it's about 70%. And if you've got a 10-year time horizon, it's about 86%. So that's pretty good. And so when we build a portfolio, we want to make sure that we have exposure to something that's likely to occur. At the same time, when you think about it over a one-year period when stocks outperformed by 70% of the time, that means 30% of the time stocks did not outperform. In fact, they underperformed. And so what do you do with that information? And during that time, that 30% of the time when stocks do not outperform treasury bills, other asset classes could be outperforming. Bonds could be outperforming, real estate could outperforming, etc. So when we build a portfolio and we go back to one of our first podcasts was on asset allocation, how do we decide what percentage of our assets to put into stocks compared to bonds, cash and real estate? We want to look at those percentages and say, well, I would like to have something that we hope will do better during that 30% of the time or 30% of years when stocks do not outperform. And again, remember, even when we talk about those 10-year periods, stocks still underperform treasury bills 14% of the time. So when we talk about time periods like 2000 to 2009, we've talked previously about during that time frame, the U.S. stocks actually declined 0.9% annually from 2000 to 2009. So that's the most recent 10-year period where stocks actually underperformed treasury bills. I think it's one of the only 10-year periods where stocks underperformed treasury bills yeah. in recorded stock market history. And so we have to remember that even though that was unusual, it's not unexpected. In fact, it's expected maybe 14% of 10-year time periods. And so things can happen, and that would be a bad thing for stock market investors. But what it also does is as we've talked many times, well, that's U.S. stocks. So how did Canadian stocks do during that 10-year period? They did better, as did some international and European stocks, as did bonds. And so when we diversify, basically what we're saying is probabilities can work for you or they can work against you. And what we want to do is we want to make the best bet that we can. Now, let's take this a little bit further. We just talked about stocks versus treasury bills. But in some other of our discussions, we've talked about factors of return. And what are those factors of return? Well, we know that small company stocks have a higher expected return than shares of large companies do. And it turns out that about 55% of the time, one-year periods, small stocks outperform. You might look at that and say, well, that's close to 50-50. So maybe Hed that's not such a tails. big deal. Hedger that's right. Tails. But when you look at 10-year periods, small company stocks outperform 71% of the time. So does that say you want to have all your money in small company stocks? Probably not. But it does say that you want exposure to those small company stocks because why would you not want exposure to something that outperforms large company stocks 71% of the time over 10 years? What would you say when somebody says, 
wait a minute, if I can get 71% of the time, my small company stocks are going to outperform, why wouldn't I just put it all into small company stocks? Well, and again, exactly for the reason I mentioned earlier, and that is that you might go through a 10-year period where you underperform. And that's a long time. When you're looking back 94 years to 1926, maybe at 10 years doesn't seem that long. But as an investor, when you're staring at your account statements every month and you see nothing but underperformance for a 10-year period, the odds of sticking with that investment strategy are very low. And so what we want to do is we want to make sure that we use probabilities to pick the right asset allocation, but make sure that we're taking care of the uncertainty of those bad outcomes happening. So we talked about small companies' value stocks, which are just companies with low relative share prices, tend to outperform growth companies 59% of the time over one-year periods and 81% of the time over 10-year periods. So do you think you should own some value stocks in the portfolio? Of course. Of course you should. And for the 19% of the time over 10-year periods, you probably want some growth stocks in there as well to take care of those periods where value stocks do not outperform. And in fact, we've just come through a three-year period where value stocks dramatically underperformed growth stocks. That ended back in November, and now the situation has switched around again. And lastly, just to finish off the factors, we know that companies with high profitability beat companies with low profitability 91% of the time over 10-year periods. That may not be a surprise to people. You might think intuitively, okay, well, it makes sense that high profitability companies, their stocks would perform better. And that's true, and that's exactly how things play out. What does this say to us? To me, it says, well, we should play the odds when we make investment decisions. We want to make sure we have exposure to those factors that have higher probabilities of outperformance. And that's not to say invest everything in those factors, because as we've seen, there's still a chance that the outperformance won't materialize even over a 10-year period. Because what's the probability of another correction happening sometime in the future, Greg? Well, I guess I can't say it's 100%, but I would say it's highly, highly likely. I would say it's 100% because you just don't know what the time frame is, right? At some point, there will be another correction. It makes sense that there would be. And in fact, the corrections have come along a lot more frequently in the past than they even have in the last 10 years or so. Well, let's talk about probability theory and probability distribution. And I hope to not lose listeners when we go through this one. But in probability theory and statistics, A probability distribution is what you described. It's the mathematical function that gives the probabilities of occurrence of different possible outcomes. The experiment in this case that we're describing is the stock market or the bond market or some function of both. So it's a mathematical description of a random phenomenon in terms of its sample space and the probabilities of events. That sounds very technical. And it is because it's the set of all possible outcomes of an experiment. So in the stock market, we could call this the sample space, what's occurred in the past. And events are subsets of the sample space, and they're assigned a probability that is a number between zero and one. And so how we use these numbers and why we're even talking about this is that for portfolio management, we commonly use Monte Carlo simulations to look at expected rates of return. Now, Greg, when I say expected rates of return, is that a guarantee? Absolutely not. And we're talking there about expected rates based on history. And so history, as we've just gone through, tells us what kinds of returns you might expect in the future. But again, absolutely not guaranteed. Monte Carlo simulations are used to model the probability of different outcomes in a process that cannot easily be predicted due to the intervention of something called random variables. You don't know what's going to happen 
tomorrow. You mean like a global pandemic, for example? That would be a random variable. Although I'm sure there are people out there that said, well, with the upcoming global pandemic around the corner, I'm going to move to cash. There's no way those people exist, by the way. That's right. But it's just a technique used to understand the impact of risk and uncertainty in prediction and forecasting models. So the history of Monte Carlo simulations go back to the popular gambling destination in Monaco called Monte Carlo. And it's just basically because there's chance and random outcomes in the modeling technique, similar to playing games like roulette, dice, and slot machines. So roulette might be a good one. So with roulette, you can... I've never really played roulette, Greg, but I've watched it. I know you can bet on red, or you can bet on black, or you can bet on specific numbers of red and specific numbers of black. And so the payout on the specific number and color is obviously much higher than the payout if you just bet on red or black. Because what would be the probability of lending on red if you chose red? On red, almost 50%, because I think there's a green in there too. So it's not quite 50%. But what's the chance of landing on red 32? Exactly. And that would be a much smaller probability and therefore, as you say, a higher payout. So this Monte Carlo simulation was first developed by somebody named Stanislav Ulam. I hope I'm pronouncing that right. A common name in our household. (laughs) Stanislav. He worked on the Manhattan Project during World War II. And the Manhattan Project was the project where the first nuclear weapons were created. Kind of a scary thing. But after the war, we'll recover from brain surgery. And I'm not sure why this person had brain surgery. Perhaps working on nuclear weapons will who knows be a byproduct <laughs> of that. But he entertained himself by playing countless games of solitaire and became interested in just basically plotting the outcome of these games to observe their distribution and determine the probability of winning. And he shared his findings with one of his friends, somebody named John von Neumann, And the two collaborated and they developed the Monte Carlo simulation. And Greg, why are we talking about Monte Carlo simulations again? Well, because Monte Carlo simulations play an important role in trying to predict possible outcomes of whether it's, in our case, obviously, the likelihood of success of an investment strategy. Right. The expected rate of return. So the basis of this Monte Carlo simulation is that the probability of those outcomes It just can't be determined because of random variable interference, like a global pandemic. So therefore, a Monte Carlo simulation focuses on constantly repeating random samples to achieve certain results. And the Monte Carlo simulation takes the variable that has uncertainty and assigns it to a random value. Now, this is getting kind of deep, and I don't mean to get too deep, but I want to explain it, that the model is run And it just basically provides a result. And the process is repeated over and over and over. So in our case, we run Monte Carlo simulations on our model portfolios that are driven by different asset allocations. And we run 10,000 different scenarios. And it gives us an expected rate of return based on how much you have in bonds and how much you have in stocks. And that expected rate of return will be different depending on the weighting to those different asset classes. So when we look at one of our real model portfolios that we call the balanced growth model, which is simply 60% in stocks and 40% in bonds, and we look at the historical data that goes back to 1978 through to the end of 2020, the actual return for that model portfolio was 7.88% per year. That's pretty good. That's pretty awesome. That's what would have happened if you had stayed in the model for 40 some odd years. 
And then they measure the standard deviation or just a measurement of volatility was 7.9. And for those that aren't familiar with standard deviation, the higher that number, the more volatile, the lower the number, the less volatile. And I think it just basically measures the deviation from that expected number. The higher the deviation, as you say, the scarier the ride. So when we look at the Monte Carlo simulation on this model portfolio, the expected rate of return going forward is only 6%, even though over the last 42 years, it returned, I don't know, call it 8% a year. The expected standard deviation going forward is 9.4, which is higher than what occurred over the previous 42 years. So what does this tell us, Greg? Well, I think what it tells us is that there's a lot of uncertainty in life, but of course, when we're talking about investing, there's a lot of uncertainty and you can't count on what's happened in the past to necessarily recreate itself in the future. And particularly when it comes to actual rates of return. So as we said earlier, we can expect that stocks will outperform bonds 86% of the time in 10-year periods, but that doesn't tell us what the rates of return will be. Yeah, the only 100% number is what's occurred. That's right. You have a 100% chance of having a return. Exactly. (laughs) Well, and the interesting thing about Monte Carlo simulations is it doesn't tell you exactly what your return will be. It tells you what the expected return will be, and then it calculates the likelihood of getting that expected return because there's a chance that you'll do better than that number, and there's a chance you'll do worse. And so the Monte Carlo simulation actually helps tell us, well, based on this plan and this strategy, you've got an 85% chance of reaching your goal. Well, and I think where it plays in even more is that when investors come to us, they're looking for certainty in something that is completely uncertain. Exactly. There's no certainty around where the market is going to go today, tomorrow, next week, or next year. But we do have probability statistics that, as you pointed out, show us that if you stayed invested for a 10-year period, well, you've got an 86% chance of having a positive return. So this sounds really familiar. It just sounds like another version of market timing all over again. So let's talk about four ideas of market timing and probability to wrap up this episode. Sure. What's the first one? We've probably talked about this in previous episodes, but to successfully time the market, you actually have to make two correct decisions, when to exit the market and when to get back in, or vice versa, when to get in and when to exit. And so this requires accurately predicting when markets are going to decline and when markets will rise. But at any point, We believe the market has already priced in all available information. And so new information can move prices, but research has shown that it's difficult to reliably predict what new information is going to come up. So making one prediction can be challenging. Making two is even harder. And the other thing too is you have to not only make a prediction about future information, but also how the market's going to react to that. So when you think of all those things, it makes timing the market extremely challenging. I think of the housing market when you say that. I had this hypothesis that house prices would go down this year based on a global pandemic, economic shutdown, job loss. Wow, completely wrong. Exactly. And it's hard to actually even pinpoint what is going on. Well, certainly we know that historically low interest rates and therefore historically low mortgage rates has fueled a lot of the move up in housing prices. But as you say, it's hard to, if you sat back and said, Well, who would have predicted that a year and a half ago? Hey, we're going to go through a global pandemic of biblical proportions. Let's buy real estate. That wouldn't have been the first conclusion based on that information. Well, the other thing too is just when you talk about market timing or whatever, the stress of being out of the market can be just 
as great as the stress of being in the market. Oh, this is the fear of missing out versus the fear of being in? That's the fear of missing out. And so if you're out of the market, it's like you look around and everybody's portfolios are moving up. And if you're in the market, you're looking around and watching your portfolio go down as everybody's did a year ago this past March, and which is also tough. And again, that comes down to, okay, well, should I get into the market now? Trying to make a prediction about, well, the market's already gone up so far. What are the odds that it's going to keep going up? Well, and the odds are it's not going to go up indefinitely. There's certain limitations that we can say from time to time that the market will not go up indefinitely. And so how close are you to that point where it stops going up? The answer is who knows? It's very uncertain. Well, and another one is when you exit the market and put your assets in cash, you have by definition actually lowered your expected return because you've, as the Monte Carlo shows us, cash has an expected return much lower than the stock market. And unfortunately, we watched somebody do this last year. They sold out of their stock positions, put it to cash because they expected the stock market to go down. And when I say the stock market, I'm saying the U.S. market. Well, what happened to the U.S. market in the last year? They had one of the best bull runs in history. So that person missed out on, I don't know, 30% return rate. So their expected return going forward was lowered. That's a real consequence. And actually, I don't want to talk about that one a little bit more because when we talked to Daniel Crosby last week, we talked about, well, why do people make those decisions, like that type of decision? And when you start digging into it, you can understand why from a behavioral way, not from a rational, logical way. So I think it's part of our jobs to keep people invested during those periods. No, exactly. Also, research offers little evidence that market timing or other types of prediction work consistently. So one example is the performance of mutual fund managers versus benchmarks. A variety of studies of this has shown that mutual funds that employ things like active management techniques, including market timing, have a poor record of beating their benchmark. So many of them fail to survive the performance period. So don't want to spend a lot of time on this, but basically what it means is like, if you looked at some data over the last, I don't know, 10 years, there was a specific number of mutual fund managers at the beginning of the period, but only about, let's say half of them survived the 10 year period. And only a quarter of those actually met or beat the benchmark. Yes, exactly. So it's not that people can't beat the benchmark. It's that the likelihood of doing it is not in your favor. Well, and probability sort of comes into play in a big way when you're looking at investment management performance. Because when you think about it, as we know, the average of all investment portfolios is the market performance minus fees. Because all portfolios combine to make up the totality of the stock market. And therefore, they all have to average out to be average. And so when you look at those, if fees were not involved, you would expect half the managers to outperform the market and have to underperform just by random chance. And so the difficulty is when you look at manager performance and what a lot of people do is, well, I'm only going to select a manager that's on the, if you're looking at a graph, it would be the right-hand side of the graph, but I'm only going to select a manager from the ones that outperformed. I'm only going to pick a winner. Exactly. Because who would pick the loser? But when you do that, as it turns out, of those ones that outperform, excluding fees for now anyway, they've only got about a one quarter chance of being in the top 25% in the future. And so that part of the risk of looking at managers and their performance is that even if they had great skill, it's hard to discern it from luck. And their persistence of their outperformance, again, coming down to probability, maybe only 25%. So I think Again, it comes down to playing the odds. 
if we had to summarize this podcast, it's you've got to play the odds. Go where there's the greatest likelihood of a positive outcome and protect yourself for those cases where the positive outcome doesn't materialize. Now, I got a question for you, Greg. Ready for it? Go for it. What's the probability of recording a podcast on your birthday? I would say that's 100%. Happy birthday, Greg. Thank you very much. (laughs) (laughs) Talking about being morbid, I was looking up the life tables from the insurance companies today, just as a birthday passes. And okay, I've got a little work to do here. (laughs) Well, anyways, I'm glad to be able to do this with you on your birthday. So happy birthday. And thank you. I think we should just wrap it up there. What do you think? Let's do it. A lot of numbers, a lot of discussion there, so we can leave it there. Well, and for any listeners that want to dig into this a bit more with us, I mean, give us a call. Drop us a line. We're happy to talk about all these things. So thanks for joining us today. And Greg, next week, we're going to be going through our one-year recap on on the last 50 podcasts. Looking forward to it. You betcha. All right. Next time. Next time. Thank you for listening to the Free Lunch Podcast hosted by the CM Group at CIBC Wood Gundy. To subscribe to this podcast to get more realistic insight on investing or to connect with one of our talented partners, please head on over to markets-work.com. We'll see you next time on the Free Lunch Podcast. The CIBC logo and CIBC Private Wealth Management are registered trademarks of CIBC. If you are currently a CIBC Wood Gundy client, please contact your investment advisor. CIBC Private Wealth Management consists of services provided by CIBC and certain of its subsidiaries, including CIBC Wood Gundy, a division of CIBC World Markets, Inc. CIBC Private Wealth Management is a registered trademark of CIBC used under license. Wood Gundy is a registered trademark of CIBC World Markets, Inc. Colin Andrews and Greg Kraminski are investment advisors with CIBC Wood Gundy. This information, including any opinion, is based on various sources believed to be reliable, but its accuracy cannot be guaranteed and is subject to change. CIBC and CIBC World Markets, Inc., their affiliates, directors, officers, and employees may buy, sell, or hold a position in securities of a company mentioned herein, its affiliates or subsidiaries, and may also perform financial advisory services, investment banking or other services for, or have lending or other credit relationships with the same. CIBC World Markets, Inc. and its representatives will receive sales commissions and or a spread between bid and ask prices if you purchase, sell, or hold the securities referred to above. CIBC World Markets, Inc., 2020.